there, uh, Romans uh, chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, uh, reading the first chapter of a book of the Bible, a church service. Sometimes mean we're starting a new series. Let me reassure you that we're not doing that. I'm neither brave enough nor foolish enough to start a series in Romans. Um, We'll be focusing just on two verses uh, from this chapter, just the last two verses that we read together, uh, verses 16 and 17. Uh, But before uh, we do that, let's pray together again. Let's ask for, for God's help. Father, we uh, need you. We need uh, your presence. We need uh, your help. And so we ask, Father, that you would uh, be present with us in your word, that you would speak uh, through your word, and that your word would be uh, effective uh, in our hearts and in our lives. And may it all be to the praise of your glorious name. Amen. I've been thinking this week um, about how the the words that we say have meanings, which might sound a weird thing to say, Um, maybe sounds a bit obvious, maybe you've never really thought about it. Um, The reason that we can communicate to each other when we speak is because we agree about the meaning of the words that we're saying. So whenever I talk about a dog, you know I'm probably talking about a furry, four-legged animal, often kept as a pet. But if we're not careful with our words, sometimes it can cause a bit of confusion. Uh, So what is a chair? Well, obviously it's the person who's in charge of a meeting, isn't it? Not the thing you're sitting on right now. Or uh, a bridge. It's this part of your nose, isn't it? Or is it just the thing that connects two land masses? Um, Maybe the the best example of this, uh, where words uh, with two meanings can cause confusion, comes from uh, the Cold War. Uh, The Cold War, uh, US President John F. Kennedy uh, goes on a trip to Berlin. And he's in Berlin and he's, he's giving a speech there. And to show his solidarity with the people of Berlin, so the story goes, uh, he stood up and he proudly said, Ich bin ein Berliner. I am a Berliner. I'm a person of Berlin. Or so he thought he was saying anyway. Um, because it turns out uh, that a Berliner uh, is actually a type of jam donut. So JFK stands up and proudly says, I am a donut. <laughs> Without dwelling too much on JFK this morning, I think you get, get the point uh, that when it comes to the words that we say, sometimes we, we hear the same sound, but we all understand different meanings. That brings us to our text this morning. That brings us to Romans 1, 16 and 17, and a word which is used by Christians all over the world, a word I'm sure you've heard, and a word I'm sure you'll agree that we need to be accurate uh, in what we mean 
whenever we say it. That word uh, is the word gospel. Good news. So we look at the passage this morning. We're going to consider the gospel, the good news together, and we'll do it taking each verse in turn, verse 16, and then verse 17. In verse 16, we'll look at defining the gospel. And in verse 17, uh, we'll look at a life in the gospel. So let's start with verse 16, defining the gospel. The book of Romans is regarded as the fullest uh, statement of the gospel uh, throughout Scripture. It's written to a group of Christians uh, in Rome. And the Apostle Paul, uh, throughout the letter, will make reference uh, to the phrase, my gospel. What does he mean by that? He he doesn't mean a gospel that's about him. He doesn't mean a gospel that he's created himself. But he's talking about a gospel that he preaches. Someone else uh, writing about uh, the book of Romans has said that this letter, if you understand it, you open up a passage to understanding the whole of Scripture. So if this letter is about the gospel... This letter is significant to how we understand uh, the rest of the Bible. Then it's important that we define our terms right from the get-go. If you've been around church circles, you'll likely know the word gospel, a word that means good news. Of course, you have the first uh, four books of the New Testament, the Gospels, which are books uh, which set out the life of Jesus Christ. But when it comes to the gospel can get a bit more confusing, a bit more tricky. We have gospel music, gospel choirs, gospel preaching, gospel-centered life, gospel-centered marriage, all sorts of things that have the word gospel attached to them. So when the word is used so broadly, we have to come back to basics. We have to come back to the Bible. And helpfully for us, Paul lays out a definition in verse 16, which you can see up on the screen, which has three characteristics of what the gospel is. So let's read it together. Let's see if you can identify the three characteristics. What does Paul say? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is, what is it, Paul? What is the gospel? It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now, did you get those? Did you get the three points? The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We'll come to that. So let's take each of them in turn, one by one. Number one, the gospel is what? The gospel is the power of God. Growing up, uh, my brother and I, uh, we used to play a lot of uh, video games together. Uh, All the classics, you know, uh, Crash Bandicoot, uh, James Bond, FIFA. um, And he would sit side by side in front of the TV. He had his controller plugged in. I had mine. But the problem is a lot of the games we played were were one-player games. So he was sitting there with his controller plugged in, playing away. Uh, defeating the baddies, scoring the goals. 
And there was me, much younger than him, sitting with my controller, which was not plugged in, but I was completely oblivious. I was having a great time. Why am I saying that? Well, perhaps you can see that in a sense, in the gospel, that's what the power of God is like. It's all his doing. It's all his power. He defeats the baddies. He scores the goals. That's the way it has to be, isn't it? When it comes to our position, uh, before we're made right with God, we're completely helpless. As Paul will go on to elaborate uh, later on in this letter, uh, we're in bondage to sin. We're guilty before a holy God. And we're completely unable to rescue ourselves. In a position like that, we need the power of God. We need uh, the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit. We need the death-defeating power of the resurrection of Jesus. We need the power of God. And Christian friends, isn't that a message that we need to hear this morning as well when it can feel like that you have the weight of the world and your shoulders in a week where the enemy can seem to get the victory we're full of doubts if we can if we can hold on isn't it great to remember that the gospel's nothing to do with our strength but it's all the power of God. So that's the first characteristic of the gospel. It's the power of God. The second characteristic of the gospel is that it is for salvation. This is closely linked to the first characteristic because it tells us uh, the purpose of the power of God in the gospel. What's the power of God for? The power of God is for salvation. Just like the need for treatment implies presence of a disease, likewise the need for salvation implies the need that there is something to be saved from. The rest of of chapter 1, and indeed throughout the rest of Romans, Paul will unravel exactly what it is that we need to be saved from. But we don't need to read the rest of the book to find out what that is. We just need to read the first verse of the next paragraph in your Bible. Look at it, verse 18. Look at it with me. For the wrath of God, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Do you see what Paul is showing us here? Do you see what's the plain teaching of Scripture? We need to be saved from the wrath of God may not like to hear that 
may not want to hear that. But that's the truth this morning. We, people like you, people like me, we have all sinned. That's our ungodliness and unrighteousness. And that sin is an offense to a holy God. And that sin has provoked the wrath of God. That's why we need salvation. We need to be saved from the wrath to come. But praise God, there is a way to be saved. The power of that same God whose wrath we are under, the power of that same God has provided a way of salvation for us in the gospel. He has sent for us his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he has borne that wrath of God upon himself on the cross, on our behalf. And at the cross, that punishment, which was rightly ours to take, has been taken by Jesus So we can be forgiven because of what he has done. Maybe you sit here this morning and you've realized that you you want that forgiveness. You don't want to bear the wrath of God. So how can you have it? How can you make it your own? Well, that's where the third uh, link in the chain comes. Look at that verse 16 again. The gospel is... One, the power of God. Two, for salvation. And three, to everyone who believes. This is the beautifully simple inclusivity of the gospel. The gospel is for all who will believe. Look at how broad that is. Everyone is included while the gift of the gospel was proclaimed first to the Jews and then came later to us Greeks or Scots. Greeks is just anyone who's not a Jew. You can see that this offer is now open to everyone. And in a world of inequalities, a world of terms and conditions, of division, Uh, socially, politically. Um, This good news is um, remarkably inclusive. And do you see how it's granted? It's not like a prize uh, received for performing best in in a competition. It's not like your university degree earned at the end of years of hard work. You don't achieve it by toil or labor you receive it as a gift from God. What a liberating truth that is in our world of of hustle and hurry. Simply believe and you're forgiven. Now, could I have saved us a lot of time this morning as we've walked through this definition uh, step by step Can I have just laid out Oxford Dictionary for you all? 
on your chairs. You could have looked up the definition of gospel, then gone home. Well, the reason that I want to take time on that this morning is because I want you to feel I want you to feel about the gospel. I want you to feel the same way that, that Paul feels about the gospel. What does it say in verse 16? How does Paul feel? I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed. So often we feel the opposite of that, don't we? Um, in our places of work, at lunchtime, uh, we're embarrassed to talk about Jesus. Um, or in, in high school, uh, we feel awkward talking about our faith. Sometimes we're even um, ashamed because we feel ashamed. But Christian, this morning, I want you to look at the gospel message the message of God's power to save all who will believe and see that this life-giving message is for a world that is lost and in dire need of hope and forgiveness. The gospel, yes, it's, it's foolishness to those that are cultured. The cross is weakness in the eyes of the strong but praise God that because of his power to save all who believe, we have nothing to be ashamed of. We spent most of our time this morning defining the gospel. Um, but for the second point, um, more briefly, I want us to look at verse 17 together and consider uh, life in the gospel. Life in the gospel. Now, if you can, uh, cast your mind back to your early high school days. Uh, for some, that's longer than, than others. Um, but your early days of high school, you've just moved from primary school to big school. For me, that meant going from a school of, of 80 to over 800. So quite a leap uh, for me. It's not just the numbers of, of pupils either, is it? It's, it's the size of the building, uh, the corridors or like mazes. Uh, there's rooms everywhere and doors for every room. Uh, it can all be a bit, a bit overwhelming. And I, I remember uh, as a young uh, year eight student being sent on a, on a task uh, by one of my teachers to go find the, the caretaker in the school. And she wanted me to find the caretaker because he had, uh, Joe had a special key uh, that opened uh, every door in every room in the building. That was called the master key. So I went and I got the master key from Joe, and as I was walking back to class, I felt so much power because I could open any door in the whole building. Of course, I didn't because I'm a massive coward, but I didn't do that. Um, but you, you see, why am I talking about keys? Well, look at verse 17 with me. I want you to realize that as you look at this verse, you're not, you're not just looking at ink on a page or, or, or pixels on a screen. What you're looking at is a, is a key. This key is a master key of sorts. Because this verse 
is the means of opening up uh, not only the rest of the book of the Romans, but actually opening up the gospel in all its fullness. Why do I say that? Well, if we had more time, uh, we could go through each phrase and word in this verse, turn by turn. So, righteousness of God revealed, faith for faith, the righteous, live by faith. But unfortunately, we don't have time to do that together this morning. So, what I propose that we do instead is look at the sort of broad brush strokes of this verse. And to do that, we're going to need some help uh, because it's a, it's a complex verse. It's rich with meaning, but it's uh, sort of waylaid with, with traps along the way. So uh, I've enlisted the help uh, of a German, uh, not a Berliner, not a jam donut, uh, but a German uh, monk. A German monk from about 500 years ago. Some of you will already know him. Uh, his name's Martin Martin Luther. Now, Martin Luther spent uh, many years lecturing a university in Germany uh, in the Book of Romans. And I want you to hear what he said uh, about the righteousness of God that's mentioned in this verse, in verse 17. This is the man that wrestled with the righteousness of God. This is also a man that had memorized uh, much of the Bible, made his living uh, teaching the Bible, a man who was a monk, who did good deeds. Listen to what he says about this passage. I hated the righteousness of God. I hated it because I had been taught to understand it as meaning the act of righteousness according to which God punishes sinners and the unjust. As a monk, says Martin, I had led a life without reproach. Nevertheless, I felt I was a sinner before God. My conscience was restless. I could not depend upon God to be satisfied with my works. Not only did I not love but I actually hated the righteous God who punishes sin. Maybe that's how you feel this morning as we thought about this passage together. You've seen the gospel laid out before you and you hate it. You hate that there is a divine standard like Luther, you realize that you can never live up to it, no matter your efforts. Well, there is good news for you this morning. It's not for the story of Luther's wrestlings with Romans 1.17 and it doesn't have to be for your wrestlings with Romans 1.17 and Luther would go on to say later in life, after much prayer, much struggling, he discovered that the righteous one, spoken about here, the one who shall 
live by faith. They do not make themselves righteous in God's sight by what they do or what they don't do. Rather, the righteous one is the one who is declared righteous as they receive it as a gift from God. You see, the righteousness of God that is spoken here is a righteousness which is accounted to us by faith. It's not a standard we can never achieve to by our own doing. Or maybe it's best to hear from um, our German friend in his own words. Listen to what he says. Then, finally, after much prayer, much struggle, God had mercy on me. And I began to understand that the righteousness of God is a gift of God by which a righteous one lives. Just as intensely as I had hated the expression, the righteousness of God, I now lovingly praised this most pleasant word. I had come to see that this passage was a very gate to paradise. Remarkably for Luther, this wasn't just a novel idea that he'd come up with himself. He was simply recovering what had been understood about this passage as far back, certainly as we have documented, as early as the 4th century. One uh, writer at that time puts it plainly. Listen to this. It is called the righteousness of God because by his bestowal of it, he makes us righteous. I want you to feel the relief of that truth this morning, Christian. As you stand before God, you stand as one declared righteous. This is the freedom we find in the gospel. But the righteousness of God, it's, it's not simply a new status. It's not just like changing your relationship status on Facebook. It's also a transformative righteousness. Do you see what it says in verse 17? The righteous shall live by faith. See, to be righteous by faith and to, to live by faith, really it's communicating the same uh, reality. There's an eternal aspect to this. We are made alive in Christ and we will live with him forevermore. We're made righteous in him because of his perfect life. But there's also a here and now aspect to this. The truth that we are righteous by faith and are to live by faith, that should change how we live today. Should we not wish to live lives that reflect our love for God? Should we not want to, to overflow uh, in love for 
our neighbor. We can think about how growing up uh, as young people in this world uh, and searching for identity uh, under the influence of so many people. We can know that we find uh, our identity in Christ. Or being maybe newly uh, retired, searching for meaning, uh, now that the old job has been left behind. You can know that you are a righteous child of God and can find peace in that truth. What about in, uh, in parenting? Which so often feels like a, an exhausting uphill slog against behavior and education and trying to uh, show your child what it is to love Jesus Christ while trying to maintain a relationship and with him yourself. You can know that as our righteousness comes from God, it's not based on, on merit, uh, but on grace. Just as you uh, love your child, uh, not because of what they do, but simply because of who they are. And maybe you lack assurance of your faith uh, this morning. Just like Martin Luther did. You fight with sin. You see the holiness of God. You wonder how he could ever love you. Dear Christian this morning, I hope you can see that our standing before God is sure. The righteous standard that God requires has been met in Jesus Christ. And it is yours if you will have it by faith uh, this morning. Will you trust him this morning? Will you believe uh, the gospel message? I pray that you will lay hold of the righteousness which is ours uh, in Jesus Christ today. Let's pray.